Welcome to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, the bite-sized TEFL podcast for teachers, trainers, and managers. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. We're here at iTEFL in Glasgow, and we have our favorite podcast guest, Dave Weller. Hurrah! Welcome, Dave. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be back, folks. Awesome. Mm. So we're just going to have a, a bit of a chat about what we've seen at IATFL, chat a bit about the, the things that we've seen and the implications. How did it start from the last thing that we, we saw about uh, the presentation with Jim Scrivener and from New Oriental talking about how people learn Teacher differently in, in China. Like, well, what we're just <laughs> <laughs> the topic right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually no secret that CLT is something of an elusive dream. Read any credible ELT research paper on the so-called adoption of CLT approaches in China, Japan, and Korea, and you won't find many success stories of local teachers making so-called smooth transition into CLT. In the majority of the classes that we saw, the teacher's job was to be the person who knew things. His job or her job was essentially simply to say those things out loud so the students could hear them. The student's role was simply to be in the presence of the teacher. Some students made notes, but a lot of students didn't. It's somehow, that there was a magical experience of simply being in the presence of a teacher. There was no need for interaction, simply being in the room was enough. They weren't invited to think or to puzzle out things or to say things. Their job was to be in the room with knowledge and receive it. So the basis of it was that Chinese people learn better through lectures, and Chinese people and the, the sort of cultural background and everything means that people learn completely differently. It can go quite deep. I mean, it's like going to the gym, right? Mm. So you're paying money, and even you know, I have a gym membership. I don't go maybe once every two weeks. I should be going three times a week. That's yeah. what I told myself I would do, but just simply because I'm paying. I find myself doing more exercise at home and yeah. being more health conscious. And for me, that would be a parallel to what's happening in the Oriental because they're paying money to attend a class. I don't think the class will have any effect on their learning outcomes. However, I think the practice at home, the awareness raising of English, the extra hours of homework they put in will have an effect. So yeah. if you were objectively looking at the data, mm-hmm. I think the experience of paying money to New Oriental would have an effect on the level of English. Also, it's more the motivation then, almost, of paying the money gives you the motivation to do the homework. Right? That would be a hypothesis I would love to test. Yeah. But I think just looking, narrowing that focus to just what happens in the classroom, I was so surprised because, as we mentioned, it's almost pre-grammar translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah James Kramer sort of said, like, we stopped doing this about 100 years ago, ago, right? And even in grammar translation, like you said earlier, Ross, yeah. that even in grammar translation, the students are given activities to do. I think about. what really got me in that discussion, because yeah. it's an interesting topic, and also being a Chinese person, sitting in the controversial discussion, yeah. and I felt like maybe sometimes and the people working in the industry in China probably have a very narrow angle um, to look at this industry in terms of teacher development and how the students learn. And they just have their own beliefs and they keep doing it for years. And it's so difficult to break it. Yeah. So I don't know. So why it's so hard for people to try something, to experiment something in a company, in an organization, to see the results. Do you think they worry about for the money, for the business side, or...? Well, Maybe. let me ask you a question, Trace, yeah. actually, because mm-hmm. you're the perfect person to... <laughs> <definitely> <laughs> well, Being 
Chinese and also you have a personal and professional view of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From both those views, mm-hmm. would you agree with what they said? I have to say, like we talk about so many different ways to learn, um, lecture-based or student-centered, communicative approach. I, I'm sure every single model or approach, or we say methods, um, they have their role and place in the learning process or teaching process. But I, for the talk, I just feel like they kind of enlarge or exaggerate the advantage and the disadvantage of one way. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, for example, like lecturing, and I'm sure in certain contexts, and we need to tell people what they need to do directly. And interesting is ITF or not that exact context because yeah. it, there's an irony about us listening to a lecture and then saying, "Well, lectures don't work because yeah. we were just that one and we were highly yes. engaged by it." Trace, let me ask you like a another one then. So I'll just play devil's advocate yeah. for a moment, right? Mm. And just say, do you think that from your experience of people you know in China and other mm. students? That that would work for some of them, maybe fifty percent or maybe ten percent. Do you think it's possible that you could have been brainwashed by the Western method and communicative language teaching over the years?、Mm. From my experience being a teacher in China back to ten, eleven years ago, and how I was trained, and how I taught my students in public schools, and then moved to private language training school and became a teacher and trainer. I can see the development and the changes over the last eleven years. I would say more and more teachers, especially younger teachers, are looking for more opportunities in in terms of professional development. I don't think they want to become a better lecturer. I think they want to become a better educator. Can I say then to, to、mm-hmm. add on to that? So that's the teachers. Do you think there's a change in the students? Because、mm-hmm. that whole thing was based on the understanding that the students want、mm-hmm. lectures. Are students changing their views of what they want? I think so because、um, for. For a number of students that I taught in the last ten, eleven years, I barely hear people said, "Oh, I really enjoy the class after the lecture style、yeah. classes." But I do constantly hear people commenting on the lessons, say, "Oh, that was really interesting. I learned a lot. I know how to communicate with people." At the end of a communicative、mm. uh, classroom experience. And another thing is, again, if the teacher they don't believe that, they're gonna deliver the information to the student. And students gonna believe what the teacher says,、yeah. and just going on and on. Another generation, another five years and ten years, and then we're gonna be in the circle. So no one really want to break it. People kind of focus on, oh, it works. We can't say it's wrong to do that,、mm. but can we find a better way to do it?、Yeah. It seems very limited number of people or organization or schools in China want to focus on that. Speaking of that, Dave and I we saw Savannah Richardson talk. It was a bit of a critique of demand high.、Mm-hmm. But I don't know about you. I thought it was really cool that she was sort of said, "Well, okay, you guys have this idea about we should be asking more of our students." But do you have any research to show that this is stuff that you're talking about actually work? But also, I thought it was amazing that why, why no one said that before? I agree. I think there's a definite trend. Anything that sounds like a, a teaching maxim, like a demand high, is a set of principles,、mm-hmm. right? About asking more from your students, setting expectations. 
and that's great but at some point I mean these are things that we should all be doing anyway with yeah. uh, learner centered teaching so it's a nice way to reinforce those ideas maybe to keep them in the back of your mind or a different approach but again I think Savannah's really interesting and right on the nose when she said has anyone ever tested these what's the data behind it? and in the era of big data we do have research we can draw upon or we can do ourselves action research to find out if that's true or not and I think it's great that someone is actually looking at that area of teaching like the, the hard evidence the evidence based teaching yeah mm-hmm. it still seems like there's shockingly little data though doesn't it on, yeah. on what's actually helping students learn it, though, isn't it it is well actually this segues into yeah. one I saw which I was great. really impressed with it was um, by two ladies Etha B and Harry's and they co-presented and it was on what has neuroscience ever done for us so they started off by debunking two neuromyths that were very prevalent the learning styles one that, and also the, the left brain right brain one that, mm. and the second part was three ideas about evidence based neuroscience the second one was about cognitive load she used a really interesting example of a picture of a heart one was like a very detailed anatomical drawing of it mm-hmm. uh, with arrows going for the valves and the pumps and then they did a very basic cutaway to 2D version which was very simplified they said which one do you think helps learners and obviously it's the simplified Uh version because in the detailed one there's so much going on that all the extra information isn't relevant to the learning that needs to happen for those students at the time and so as teachers we should try and reduce the information complexity where it's not necessary that's interesting because that's similar to Donald Freeman's talk today about different types of teacher language so using English as the content of the class English is the medium for instruction and then also English is the medium for professional discourse and that seems like an interesting application for it like I wonder are there any times when by having English as the medium of instruction and also the content if you're learning English in English does that ever overload people? well that's interesting because yeah. that leads to the third one which ah, is yeah. actually very related so it's a, and they said that for vocabulary learning if you give learners translations in their L1 their recall and retention is much better than for L2 if you set the context in L2 and you give the definitions using L2 wow and I was uh, that's wonderful because you know I remember when I first did my initial teacher training course it was one of the sacred cows that no L1 <laughs> in class thou shall not speak L1 so, so yes. you saw teachers trying to jump through these linguistic hoops trying to explain what certain things mm-hmm. were but yes that was really interesting I think I, the I, I heard uh, Penny you were doing a talk a couple of years ago and, and basically did the same thing it was more about guessing vocabulary and she mm. was saying yeah like actually one of the best ways to teach vocabulary is just to give people a translation Definitely. but I guess it's kind of counterintuitive to us isn't it and it doesn't fit with the narrative that native speakers are the yeah. best in class and you, mm. all we need to do is speak L1 and there was a huge argument to be made that bilingual teachers assuming that's a, a native speaker of the country that the language is being taught as a foreign language in would be much more capable and and that was evidence to support why local teachers in the local context should be paid equal, if not more, yeah. mm. than a native speaker who comes in who can't perform the same function, which has now been found to be beneficial. Yeah. That's such a good point, Dave. Yeah, when there's actual evidence to show that this thing that you have, this skill that you have, being able to speak two languages, there we go. This helps the students. Mm. But yeah, we'll still pay these people less money. Where's the rationale behind that? Precisely. What really interests me 
for the whole conference and just so many sessions talking about the relationships and connections between the teacher and the students. Mm. What really um, made me feel impressed is the video showed at the plenary session this morning by Sorry, Master. Yeah. A lot of students come in with you know situation at home that's not ideal. So therefore, when they come into school, I want this to be their sanctuary. I want them to be excited to come to school because before I'm able to deliver a substantial amount of content to them, they have to buy into me. But one thing that's going to stick with them forever is how did Mr. White treat me when I was in this grade? So that's really what um that's really why I do it and to bring joy to them. I mean, I feel like every student needs a little bit of joy in their life. So. Mr. White is a great example of what teachers do. Teachers inspire, they motivate, they create that magic. You can have the best materials in the world, the best resources in the world, but you are not going to connect with people unless you have that human element. Um, I think it was really, really impressive. I, I almost cried because wow. I, you can see the teacher put a lot of efforts on knowing the students have the trust and clearly it shows their learning results was getting much, much better. He said a lot of my students don't have a great home life, so I want the, my classroom to be the sanctuary mm -hmm. for them. And I thought that's so interesting because almost often it's, it's the opposite. I, th I thought the other most interesting one that I'd seen him for teacher training was Rob Williams talking about do initial teacher training courses actually prepare you to be able to teach a lot of you know pre-service courses it's like a horseshoe and you're teaching adults but you know when you actually leave you end up probably with a class that's much bigger and the desks are in, in rows mm -hmm. sometimes nailed to the ground and more often than not you're teaching kids instead of teaching adults so I think he was saying it's not that they don't prepare people but could we be doing something to prepare people making more personalized so I thought I was really interested to hear your guys thoughts on that I think for me definitely try to know your trainees as much as possible before they started the course and try to make it as much related as possible to each individual trainees. It's mm. interesting though with that though because yeah. for most people probably do the CELTA or a CERTESOL or TEFL certificate. They do it before they start work which obviously makes it so much more difficult because mm -hmm. you don't know as the trainee where you're going to end up working when you start the course. Um, a lot of training courses don't train the teachers on how to learn. I almost feel it's almost like the training always lags a bit behind the teaching. It's like you have some sort of teaching practices and then it's always a few years later that they actually get incorporated into the, the training. So for example, Dave and I saw Savannah Richards and she was talking about making students aware of the aims mm -hmm. of every session. But like, is that something that we've carried over into training? Do we always make our trainees aware of the aims of every, every session and that kind of loop? Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Dave, thanks for being on the podcast. It was wonderful to have you here. It's a pleasure as always. Great. We'll see you at iTafel next year. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. For more podcasts, videos, and blogs, visit our website www.tefeltraininginstitute.com. If you've got a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a comment. And if you want to keep up to date with our latest content, add us on WeChat at TEFL Training Institute. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Bye.